Today on the Zabecast, did you miss me? That's seven full days of Zabecast that you'll never get because I was on an African safari with a bunch of listeners. I'll file that one under sorry, not sorry. We've got the Bob Craft take today. We've got nuggets from the trip. We got Zion Williamson, my camera revelation, and why flying first class is simply magical. Bonus Abe is finally back in your life, so buckle up and let's go! Wednesday, February 27, 2019. Thank you for downloading and welcome back. Welcome me back. Right out of the gate, boom, Bob Craft. What a story. Many angles, many threads, many misconceptions, and still a lot that is developing on this story. I'll do my best to sort through them here, but remember this thing is still in its early stages. Some things lately I think have actually helped craft a little bit but it's still bad it's bad for him it's bad for his reputation he's going to get suspended by the league he is going to get fined although that's really no big deal because he's worth 6.2 billion dollars but this is now forever in his wikipedia page and it's embarrassing has to be embarrassing i would think Now, when I say he's going to get suspended, and I say that confidently, don't mix that up with me saying I think he should be suspended. Some people just jump right to that and think that I am in support of the NFL suspending him by saying, oh, he's going to get suspended. People assume that like part of my rationale is he's going to, and I believe he should. The NFL is a league of optics. And this is a very bad optic. Now, the one thing that cut in his favor today was the further reporting by TJ Quinn of ESPN.com. Excellent reporter. The ESPN does some things right. Uh, Michelle Steele, also reporting on this story, reported that the women on two occasions that serviced Mr. Kraft happened to be 53 and I think 40 years old, respectively. In fact, one of the women actually has a valid New York State driver's license, which also helps him out. When the story first broke several days ago, they said that this, that his name, Bob Kraft, got caught up in a net of Johns that had been soliciting sex acts from strip mall massage parlors up and down that part of Florida that authorities believed were involved in human trafficking, human sex trafficking. That was the initial report. And my, and they said, of course, they've got video of this, which they do. And my first thought was, oh boy, video and human trafficking, that's big trouble. I envision Bob Kraft possibly getting serviced by and or having full-on sex with a young 17, 18, 19-year-old girl, woman, that would prove to be, uh, turn out that she had been living there for in the salon for 35 days or something like that. It now looks like, no, these were older women, although, hell, they're still half his age. (laughs) 
they're older women that may be closer to pros, should get my air quotes there, than they are sex slaves. Still not good, but at least it cut a little bit in his direction. All that said, this is this is bad for him, it's bad for the league, and they're going to have to suspend him based on previous precedent. Because the league wants to pretend like they care about women all the time. Oh, so sensitive, so woke, we're so in tune with things. And there's a lot of bad arguments that are in support of Bob Kraft, and I'll just list a few of them here. Well, how do you know he had any idea that maybe that place was involved in human trafficking? You should know that these strip mall massage parlors that have masseuses, most of the time Asian, that will give you some sort of sexual service, whether it's a handy or a BJ or even something more than that, you should know that those are ripe areas in which, if it happens, human trafficking and sex trafficking can occur. Now, here's an interesting little sidebar here before we get too much further. Deadspin actually has a story in which they try to investigate, well, how many people have been charged with actual human trafficking in the state of Florida in the last year? And the answer is apparently zero. There is a tendency by law enforcement to hype up and inflate this angle, this sex trafficking angle, as part of the justification for their oftentimes man-hour intensive surveillance of these some 9,000 day spa, strip mall, massage parlors in the state of Florida. Because this operation involved spotters who would stake out the particular locations. Officers who would pull over the Johns that they had spotted leaving the massage parlor, pull them over for what was supposed to be a routine traffic stop just to make sure they got the identification and got the driver's license of the person that had been witnessed and videotaped going into that massage parlor. So this is a lot of man hours, this is a big effort that goes on. So to to justify it, they oftentimes law enforcement will say, "Well, this we got a this is a big human trafficking ring going on at these day spas." Maybe sort of, maybe not. But that's let's put that to the side for a second. Bob Kraft who apparently gave several hundred thousand dollars or at least a hundred thousand dollars, maybe more to a uh, charity that is, you know, dedicated to ending human trafficking in the United States. Bob Kraft can't play the whole uncle Leo from Seinfeld. I'm confused. I'm an old man. I don't understand this. Can't, excuse me. Can't play that card. I I mean, you could play it. It's not going to win you any hands. I didn't know. So he was going to this, part of the reason that the cops got tipped off to this place was, well, they, they're in the community. They hear, they hear things. They know things. Hell, some cops might go to that spa and say like, hey, do you know you go over here to the uh, Orchids of Asia, they give you a really good parking brake release at the end. They spotted a bunch of high-end cars coming and going or coming and staying and then going. 
as in the case of Bob Kraft, his two visits. Visit number one was in a white Bentley. Visit number two was in a blue Bentley. Nice. Neither time he drove himself, he was chauffeured there in said Bentley. And each time, his entire encounter at the Orchids of Asia Day Spa lasted somewhere under like 20 minutes from in the door to out the door. So when people, and this is another argument that I find unpersuasive, oh, come on, you got a rub and tug. Who hasn't had one of those? Uh, I'm raising my hand right now. No, no, I'm not going to have a rub and tug. Why would I outsource something, the tug part? Why would I outsource something I'm, I'm better at? I know what I like. Why would I need to give that to somebody else? And in the case of Kraft, it turns out if the police report is accurate, we must say that as a disclaimer, there was no rub and there was no tug. There was a barely a how you doing. It was a just get on to slobbering kind of situation. So it's bad for Kraft. It's embarrassing. It's bad for the league, a league of optics, league that caters to and cares so much about women. They're going to have to suspend Robert Kraft for some period of time because just finding him is not going to cut it. I'm sure the other owners are pissed as all get out as well because these other owners are like, great, thanks, Bob. Appreciate that. Now everybody thinks we're all doing this. To which some would say, well, I bet you they are. I don't think all owners are doing this. I think there are definitely some owners that are way more straight-laced than others. I think a third of the league probably is. There's some owners that may not be that straight-laced, but they're not stupid is the thing. That's another part of this that kills me. I think Bob Kraft had, he got a thrill out of doing something he knew was perhaps a bit dangerous because with his money, he can find, he, all he has to do is to tell a trusted lieutenant, one of his male lieutenants who help coordinate things for him, say, hey, listen, I need you to find me a masseuse who is not afraid to do the little and a little, okay, know what I mean? Okay, boss, I'm on it. And then that assistant goes out and he starts networking. Who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? And you find a masseuse who is willing to come to Bob Kraft's mansion and give him the parking brake to take the chrome off the trailer hitch, whatever he wants for the most part, and stay quiet about it. Absolutely quiet. That's easy to do when you're a billionaire. Easy. So I think he wanted that sort of thrill of, hey, I know I'm worth $6.2 billion. I know that I've got to get on my private plane in a couple hours and fly to Kansas City and then roll right off the plane, right into a limo, roll right up to the stadium, roll right into the owner suite and watch Tom Brady and Bill Belichick cut the Chiefs' heart out and show it to them before they fall to the ground and die. So let me do something to get me excited here. Let me get chauffeured to the Orchids of Asia Day Spa. 
during one of the cut-ins on Tuesday on ESPN, I believe Michelle Steele set up the two-shot with her and TJ Quinn by asking Quinn, many people are wondering not just why a strip mall massage parlor, but why one that was nearly 30 minutes away from Mr. Kraft's residence. Uh, what'd you say? Many people are wondering? Quinn followed up by saying, and prosecutors aren't sure either why that is. <laughs> Hello? What do you mean, why? Unless you know of another day spa closer to Bob Kraft's mansion that also gives sexual services, the reason why is because that's where he could get this shit from. That was the closest one. That was the one that other rich, high-profile guys rolling up in their Bentleys and their Porsches and being conspicuous about it, that's where they were going. And those wealthy people talk, and they're like, yeah, why go 30 minutes out of your way? It's a terrible look for the six-time Super Bowl champion owner of the New England Patriots. It's a terrible look for owners who have billions of dollars in an age in America where socialism, actual, full-blown, no no soft socialism, no socialism light, no pseudo-socialism, but like full-blown socialism is on the rise in a way that has never existed in my lifetime. It's crazy. The growing resentment against the rich it has never been at, at least not never, at least in my lifetime, I, I feel like it's greater than ever. And of course, the internet, getting people all whipped up into a frenzy. I bet these NFL owners realize we need to walk and make sure we're we're not being too much like people hate and make sure we we don't flaunt it too much because we're we're trying to take this league to 25 billion dollars of annual revenue by the year 2025 or whatever their goal is under roger goodell of course they're buying yachts at a record pace the latest arthur blank to buy a 180 million dollar yacht jerry's is 150 dan's is Dan sucks. Dan Snyder's yacht is now like $100 million. It's a dinghy. I suggested we have a New York City to Miami Beach regatta of super yachts owned by NFL owners, and the first one down to Miami gets to pick first in the NFL draft. Man, what do you say? So you got a $6 billion man with who knows how many color Bentleys he has either white one a blue one maybe he's got an alternate sunday bentley that's got a special paint job who knows doesn't drive him himself and he went 30 30 minutes out of his way to go have some 53 and 40 year old chinese woman suck him off for a hundred dollars and a tip could you get worse optics than that Yeah, well, it should be legal amongst consenting adults. Hey, the legalization of prostitution, there's an argument for it. And it's not a discussion that I think is ripe here 
at this time. Certainly, if this was a 17-year-old that did it and she had been proven to have been living at that day spa for 65 days in a row or something like that, that's a way different deal. But I won't argue for or against legalized prostitution. I think for for every argument for it, because we are now entering a, you know, look at all of the vices becoming legal now in America. Marijuana, gambling on sports, maybe prostitution is next. There's also a strong counter-argument to legalization of prostitution, a.k.a. the world's oldest profession, because it is the path of least resistance for many women who may not have the best job skills or ability to provide or work ethic. Oh, oh, I'm a fairly decent-looking woman, and I, I now can legally just go let men fuck me? And I get money for it? Oh, I'd love that. That's, that's my dream job. That's what young women easily could be led into thinking. And what that often does is it leads to utterly broken souls and depression and suicide and feelings of worthlessness because after your 5th, 10th, 100th, 500th smelly, disgusting, perverted old man is done with you, at some point, you're not living the movie Pretty Woman. You're not Julia Roberts. That's the argument against legalization of this activity, that it is not beneficial. It's not helpful. It's too easy to, to, you know, young women who are not as ambitious in school or not as smart think, well, that's okay. I've got a vagina. I've, I, I can use that and make, make money, set my own schedule. It's great. Yes. No, not great. So Bob Kraft is, is at some point And legally, maybe he gets out of it. Maybe there's a Hail Mary. They keep saying he's got good lawyers. He could argue this. He could argue that. He could plead it down. Legally, he's not in any real trouble at all. He's not going to jail. And it's a misdemeanor. But from an NFL standpoint, it is a a huge black mark on his reign. And I think there are repercussions to it. The NFL is not going to force him out not with the way this thing is currently trending, and probably never were going to do that. The NFL, I forgot, technically didn't force Richardson to sell Jerry Richardson to the Panthers. They just knew, Richardson knew that they were about to crawl up his ass with a microscope and a miner's light and just start digging around at all this stuff involved in the organization. And this was organizational, sexual, if not harassment, it was just creepiness. And there was some racial stuff in there that this investigation was going to be fatal to Richardson. And he decided, yeah, you know what? Might as well better sell now. He sold before the NFL had even actually finished their investigation and had fined Richardson after the fact. But I think a suspension along the lines of Ursay was caught with pills and oxy and had given pills to his girlfriend slash, yeah, just, I don't think mistress because I'm not sure Ursay is married girlfriend she overdosed died so he killed somebody theoretically technically maybe she might have gotten drugs from somewhere else i'm not going to put it directly on him that was bad the nfl came down i think the nfl has to come down on craft here they've got to suspend him they will suspend him minimum four games 
possibly up to a year. Depends on what kind of message they want to send. Depends on whether or not any more details come out that go against Kraft or just make him look like a total heel, which he is. I mean, he's a dirty old man. He's got supposedly this uh, you know, former Ford modeling agency woman, the one that was in that awful audition tape, with whom he has allegedly fathered a child. But you know what she can't do? She can't be a 50-year-old Asian masseuse in a cheap-ass, seedy little day spa. Maybe not seedy. A cheap-ass, rinky-dink, strip mall day spa. Just getting him loose before a big game Sunday with a right to go to the Super Bowl. That's what she can't do. Actually had a friend of mine once upon a time say, you know what, Zabe? Every rich woman at some point has sucked her last dick. And I said, what? He goes, oh, yeah. Once they get to a certain point, you know, they're they're married to a rich guy. At some point, they just go, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Hey, wait a minute. I thought that was part of the deal with I'm rich, and now you're living with me, and you're my girlfriend or mistress, or I'm married to you, and you're not you're not going to do that anymore. That's at least was his theory. I'm not sure if this new girlfriend friend they really didn't say what she was. And when when I believe the tabloids reported that he had had a child with this woman, who conveniently disappeared from the spotlight, they really didn't follow that up. Poor Myra. What does Myra Kraft think? I'll never forget that cheesy, stupid moment when Jeff Saturday, then the head of the Players Union after the lockout, arm in arm with Bob Kraft in sympathy because old Myra Kraft had finally passed away due to cancer. And he's in tears and Bob Kraft's in tears. What do you think Myra's saying right now? Tut, tut, tut. To be continued for sure. Then there was Zion Williamson and his shoe, which disintegrated on a hard cut by the massive, soon-to-be first overall pick in the NBA draft. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Zabe. Have you not seen R.J. Barrett's numbers since Zion tweaked his knee? Some are now saying he will be or should be the first pick in the NBA draft. He's sweet. He's sweet. I'll give you that. But there's only one Zion. And when the video came out of him disintegrating his shoe, it's not the first time, by the way, that a NBA player or even college player has had a shoe malfunction on them. But it's pretty embarrassing when he is going to get a huge contract from Nike to wear their shoes when the shoe that he was wearing in a game just went and took a giant shit and disintegrated right there on national TV. Disintegrated before the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, who in a viral clip You could see him say clearly, oh my God, his shoe broke. (laughs) That was a pretty cool clip right there. Of course, there was people like 
Darren Ravel, God bless him, who jumped on the whole Nike stock is down 1.1%, which represents a paper loss of $75 trillion. And then the next day, the stock went back up beyond where it had been before the Zion shoe malfunction. And it's like, so what now? Did his shoe blowing out matter to Nike or not? The same nonsense that some people jumped on uh, after the Colin Kaepernick announcement that he would have his own, uh, does he have his own shoe with Nike or his own apparel or was it just the ad? I think it was just an ad by Nike. I like the shoe debacle because it was a perfect sports radio story that I got to miss. And the part I don't miss talking about, and hopefully it's died down, because he's already said he's going to keep playing, is should Zion shut it down to avoid further injury? Oh, for God's sakes. This again? We're now in a shutdown society. Oh, no, we got to protect our... Got to protect my draft status. Got to, you know, the, the whole shutting down Anthony Davis. Well, we're going to trade him this summer, so we got to make sure we protect him. Bubble wrap yourself, people. Leaving your house in the morning is the most dangerous thing you can do. Careful, you could get hurt. Somebody could lose an eye. I'm glad Zion's going to play the rest of the year. I don't think sitting out makes any sense. This was not a catastrophic knee injury, and catastrophic knee injuries can happen at any time, including in training. Achilles can blow out in training. Paul George suffered one of the most gruesome knee injuries. Gruesome? He certainly blew out his knee big time playing for the U.S. national team. Did anyone say, you know, we got to stop playing these games that don't matter because these are highly paid professionals who must be ready for their team's paid regular season. Nobody said that after he blew out his knee playing for Team USA. Injuries happen. Life goes on. Keep playing. Good for Zion and bad for Nike. Although I kind of think that it's possible Zion needs a reinforced shoe or at least one that's not made by 12-year-olds and Thailand, Thailand, how did that happen? How did that shoe fall apart? Well, you know, they are made. Are they still being made in in Thailand? Are they still being made with child labor? I know that was a big expose and a big cause celeb for a while. Maybe they've upped the pay in Thailand. Maybe they've kicked the 12-year-olds out of the factories and now you've got to be at least 16 or 18 or something like that to stitch together the Paul George 1 shoe. I think it was Paul George 1, the PG1, the PG2, the PG ZX9. At least it wasn't a big baller brand shoe, which apparently the company is now close to going out of business. The company the company, LeVar Ball's Fakakta Shoe Company. Can you hear the air quotes in that? The company. Latest story I read said that the new Zoe 02 shoes, whatever they're called, 
are so far behind in production that they're not going to ship until like six months after they were promised. Yet some people will still buy them because there are sneakerheads out there that collect these things. And the and the Alonzo Ball, LeVar Ball, Big Baller brand shoe, I think it's like the DeLorean of the shoe world among shoe collectors. The DeLorean itself was a laughably underpowered piece of shit car. But it was cool. And it was one of a kind with its gull wings. And so they were considered to be very valuable. And you can look up restorations, remakes of those vehicles. And they are, they, they hold their value. They, they don't go for cheap is what I'm saying. For an 85 horsepower car. Is it 85 horsepower? Maybe 110. Might have been 110. Whatever. People will collect the... Uh, they'll still buy the big baller brand shoe. They will collect them if for nothing else, posterity's sake. And to be able to say, yeah, I, I, I have one of those pairs of piece of shit shoes. But Zion, good on you, son, for still playing basketball when you should. And uh, we can't wait for you to get back, dunking on people, making incredible plays, hopefully with reinforced sneakers. While I was in South Africa, I gave cricket a good, legitimate shot. I swear to God, I sat and I watched cricket in my hotel room for damn near an hour. Yeah, I was glancing at my phone, but I was still watching. And guess what? I wasn't missing much either while still looking at my phone. Anyone who says, well, you know, cricket, Zabe, it's sort of like the rest of the world's baseball. It seems quirky at first, and the strategy may be a bit dense, but once you understand it, I'm telling you, rich with strategy. I got one thing to say about that. Bull fucking shit. Cricket is the worst. It is the biggest garbage sport I've ever seen. It has so little nutritional value. As something to watch, it's not even, you can't even put it into words. So come at me, bro, Cricket Nation. Come at me. You can come at me with your takes. I know the emails are being written right now. You don't know what you're talking about. I do know what I'm talking about because I'm a sports fan. I'm a, I'm a very omnivorous sports fan. I watch damn near everything. I am curious-minded. I will give things a shot and I will try to understand those sports. And I've tried, I've tried with cricket. I gave it an hour and it was a laugh fest fucking joke of nothingness. It's the world's version of baseball. Are you kidding me? Cricket makes baseball look like a Chinese downhill from the movie hot dog. What the fuck is a Chinese downhill? That was a line in the movie by one of the Asian guys who's like, I don't know what a Chinese downhill is. Was it a Chinese downhill? Japanese downhill. I have no idea. One of the two. Where they would get 20 guys to ski downhill and they would be able to knock each other off of cliffs and use weapons to kill each other on the way down the, on the, way down the slopes. Cricket. Cricket makes baseball look like the most amazing 
action-packed game you've ever seen. In cricket, I timed it. It was 45 seconds on average between pitches or bowls or whatever you call it, where they actually run, 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 throw the ball with a bounce, and run, 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 throw the ball with a bounce. The commentating on a cricket match is so languished, if that's even a word of the proper, or if it's the proper variant of the word languishing. The commentary was so dull and meandering, in part because these things go for five days. One of the commentators noted how basically the fielders in this particular match, and I quote here, have not moved an inch in the two hours since this test began. Two hours and the fielders haven't moved and the announcers are admitting as much. Yeah, you run back and forth between the two sets of the wickets. Uh, Hey, how about that? You're telling me that's the equivalent of baseball where you have to go run around four different bases? Once you get on base, you can try to steal and take a lead and get thrown picked off. And you got to figure out how to avoid double plays and sliding into second baseman or shortstops to break up the double play, or at least you once upon a time could. You really can't as much anymore. The chemist, the, the, not the chemistry, the, uh, the angles involved, the geometry of a baseball game, what angles to take, the throws to make, who do you hit as the cutoff man, what's the right play here, balls in motion, hit to the gap, who's going to field it, where are you going to throw, catch, tag, safe. Cricket ain't got any of that shit. Not a lick of that. Oh, but it's really hard, Zabe. You know how hard it is to hit one of those balls? Uh, sure, it's hard. I'm sure I couldn't do it. It's not as hard as baseball, though. Oh, see, that's where you don't understand cricket. No, bullshit. I'm going to tell you why it's not as hard as baseball. I think a cricket ball is larger. And even if it's not larger than a baseball, I know this. The bat's bigger. It's flat. It's got a big, wide-ass, flat side to it. And you don't even have to hit it hard sometimes. All you have to do is just deflect it somewhere where the fielding guys aren't or something like that. See, you don't know anything about cricket. And you're... I know enough to know it sucks. I know enough to know it's utterly dreadful to watch. I know this. When I was watching that hour of cricket, the commentators were talking about, well, it's about 10 minutes until lunchtime. I'm sure the players right now are kind of wondering the, how things, uh, how close they'll get before lunchtime. It's a sport in which the players can't wait for lunch. Get out of here. It's the worst. There can't, there can't be a worse sport than cricket. Sorry. I gave it a shot. One hour of my life down the drain. 
And 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 you want to come at me, Cricket Nation? Come at me. Zabe at yahoo.com. Bring it, bring it all. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with you, but I know you need to get this off your chest about how little I know. It is not baseball for the rest of the world. It's the shittiest, lamest, unnecessarily long version of a fraction of the excitement that baseball involves. It's a joke. But it's very popular. Which I guess says a lot about the rest of the world that likes cricket. They can't play baseball. They need a flat bat to hit a larger ball and just bink, put it into play. They can't handle a split finger, dipsy do, cut fastball, curveball, gyro ball, slider, backdoor slider, you name it, with a round bat from 60 feet, six inches coming at you in a blur. And guess what? In in our game, we don't wear giant face bars on our helmets like these cricket pussies do. You stand in that box of terror, 60 feet, six inches from some monster throwing 101 miles an hour, and you pray to God that he didn't get loose with one up in your face. Cricket, totally different. But like I said, popular around the world. The rest of the world can have it. You can have short match cricket. You can have five-day cricket. Every cricket you want, have it. Garbage game. So our tour guide in Zimbabwe was an impossibly charming Zimbabwean woman by the name of Cynthia. Cynthia. Her real name, her given name, was Semokai. Semokai, she explained to us, which stands for, in her native tribal tongue, of stand up. She said she hated that name, and that's why she went by Cynthia. And I and I asked her after she gave this explanation while we're sitting on the bus going to Victoria Falls, I pulled her aside, aside and said, Semokai sounds beautiful. What? Why don't you like I like that stand up. She's like, why didn't you like it? I was like, why didn't you like it? She said, I got teased a lot as a kid. She said her mother named her that because she wanted her to stand up and make something of her life. And boy, I got to say that Cynthia or Semokai absolutely has done just that. Yeah, she's just a tour guide in Zimbabwe, but she is... So intelligent. And her English is so good. She speaks English maybe better than I do. And that's one of about seven or eight different languages that she speaks. So she would explain to us, because we had a lot of bus time going from Zimbabwe across the border to Botswana. She explained to us about her native country, Zimbabwe, and where it's at currently. And me being a very passionate but casual observer of history and politics, you know, worldwide politics, she starts explaining about their former president of Zimbabwe, Mugabe, Robert Mugabe. And I first thought, oh, yeah, that guy, Mugabe. Well, they had just gotten, they had gotten rid of Mugabe finally after many, many years. He was president for something ridiculous like 40 years. And I said, when... 
when did you guys get rid of Mugabe? She goes, oh, two years ago. And my first thought was, really? That asshole was still around as recently as two years ago? Uh-huh. She went on to explain how Mugabe had two different sides to him. And that was being very generous because most people said that Mugabe was just a pure asshole and terrible in every respect. She at least said, look, he did a lot of things to foster education in the country early on in his uh, regime, but towards the end, not so much. Mugabe led Zimbabwe down a path that they're still trying to recover from in which they decided to just take back farms that had been in operation in the country dating back tens of years, dozens of years, I don't know how long, that were owned by white colonial descendants from Europe. Denmark, Sweden, maybe not Sweden, Denmark, I think she said, uh, Germany, France, Italy, some other, you know, all the colonial powers. Was Italy a colonial power? Okay, this is where my history gets a little bit murky. Yeah, it sounds very murky already, you dumbass. So Zimbabwe started to take back farms and take back land that was owned and operated by outsiders. And Mugabe was saying things publicly like, the only white man you can trust is a dead one. Cynthia said, can you imagine having to, you know, we're, we're here trying to progress as a country and we need tourism badly for our economy. We can't have that. Besides, she said, this is not how civil society should work where leaders say such things. No matter how bad the colonial history is, and trust me, I know how bad many nations in Africa are scarred by their colonial histories. You, you can't say that in modern times. Not, not if you don't want to consign yourself to being really, really economically fucked up. So between those two things, Zimbabwe has been suffering. But they're trying to make a comeback now, and Semokai, stand up, has decided to stay in country when she could easily, with her smarts and her charm, her beauty, she could go anywhere in the world and do amazing things. But she said, I want to stay home. I want to help make my country better. And that's a beautiful thing. So she was explaining how these farms, many of which used to produce things, coffee and other agricultural products, duh, farming, now they lay abandoned and out of use because they just went and grabbed the farms back from the white owners that were not natives, and they didn't do anything to learn how to actually do the farming themselves. And there was no government program to say, look, we're going to have a process here whereby we're going to have those who have farms in Zimbabwe, they're going to teach the locals how to operate the farms, and we're going to have a smooth transition, and there will be a financial settlement and a plan to compensate eventually the farmers who had been operating these lands so it can be taken over by locals. So, the, so everyone wins in this. 
yes, we're going to take back our lands and yes, we're going to start doing our own farming, but we need your help because we don't know how to do this stuff. And we're going to give you a nice big chunk of change on the way out the door. Win-win. Of course, many farmers probably would say, well, fuck that. I'm not doing that. You're taking my, you're taking land that at least I thought was mine and I was farming on and kicking me out of the country. Good luck. You do that. Fine. See if you're not a farm, but I'm, I'm sensing that would happen with some of them. I'm sure. But others I think would say, look, it's ultimately best that this land produces so that the people here can eat and calves can have some economic future. So sure. I will help teach them how to do it. And I'm going to get more money that way than if I just run for my life as they threaten to uh, burn me with a tire around my neck if I don't give up my land. Tough stuff. Tough stuff either way. But Zimbabwe also lost their dollar, which if you listened or watched on any of my videos I posted on Twitter uh, while we were down there, they lost their dollar because of hyperinflation. Now, if you think I'm shaky on world history and only know only know enough to be dangerous, like my brother-in-law, or know just enough to be dangerous, I'm even worse on monetary policy and understanding money in a, from a global standpoint. I, I also think that there's no shame in that because it's one of the most complex things in the world. I know that when you just start printing more dollars to try to escape certain economic malaise, you get inflation. And when you get inflation that is was as bad as it got in Zimbabwe, you have actual $50 billion notes. That's right, $50 billion Zimbabwe notes. I purchased a set of five comically overinflated Zimbabwean dollar notes. I think I got a $50 billion one. I think I got a $500 billion one. That's where they got with their money because of Mugabe. So their their currency became so unstable and so unusable because you're handing something, well, I would like a, a goat and that uh, necklace. Okay, that'll be $110 billion Zimbabwean dollars, or as I called them, Mugabe's. <laughs> I bought I bought these five dollars. Five, I bought these five bills as souvenirs because they were pitching them at the market, and uh, the, the people kind of there. I won't say they harassed you, but they were very aggressive salespeople, and they wouldn't let you go. You want to buy some of these? Want to buy some of these? They're worthless notes. I was telling the people on uh, uh, in our group on the bus. I go. All right, who wants one of these $50 billion notes? I'll sell it to you for a dollar. I think I made money, actually. I'm like George Soros, man. I I bought five worthless Zimbabwean notes for $3, and I sold them on the bus for $5. Yes, genius. So they uh, they lost their currency. They had to go to the U.S. dollar. But when we visited, turns out, we land at the airport, and their ATM at the airport had no money in it. The ATMs in town at very small Victoria Falls also had no money, no American dollars. That's part of the problem with Zimbabwe. A lot of things 
just still aren't right. But God bless Cynthia or Semokai, who's there trying to make things better. Never felt unsafe in the country. It wasn't sketchy, at least where we were in Victoria Falls. I think it was sketchy elsewhere in Zimbabwe. But you got a real sense of, yeah, yeah, they got a long way to go there. They feel like this new president has got some promise, got to end some of the corruption that had been going on for years and years and years. And they want to be more like their neighbor just to the north or just to the northwest, Botswana, where we went for the other part of the safari. Botswana has their shit together. They've got a good, stable economy relative to the rest of the continent. I asked uh, Cynthia about this. I said, well, what's the big difference then between Botswana and Zimbabwe? And she said, basically, it is the uh, cracking down on corruption. She said, the biggest difference is in Botswana, if you want to build something or if you want to do something that requires a permit or something from the government, there's none of this, uh, hey, hey, mon, you know, hey, hey, bro, help me out. Mon, bro, whatever they say. There's none of that. It's You better have your paperwork in order. They're also big on anti-poaching, big time in Botswana. Other countries, not so much. And so Botswana has the most elephants of any country in the entire continent. And we saw a shit ton of elephants. I believe the number in Botswana was something close to 300,000 of them. Mainly in part because these elephants from neighboring countries, they're not dumb. Very smart. Smart. A smart elephant. They started wandering into Botswana because they knew they were safe there. They knew they could avoid poachers there. They just got a sense for, okay, well, where, where, where are other elephants not getting shot, having their tusks carved out and left to rot? But Botswana has their act together for the most part. There was one exception which blew my mind, and I'll tell you about it next. And we're back. Sorry for taking so long on that commercial break. It was all of two seconds. Here's what blew my mind about Botswana. As as good as they are as a country compared to their neighbor, their deadbeat neighbor Zimbabwe with their funny money, monopoly money, $50 billion notes, there is a, there is a, a ferry that takes trucks across one of the big rivers right near the border. And the ferry, there's only like one of them, and it can only take a handful of trucks across at a time. Furthermore, because it's taking trucks across the border between two countries, there has to be inspections and paperwork done on what kind of goods you're transporting into one country and out of another. So because of all this, there's a big bottleneck on this particular ferry crossing. And as we went from Zimbabwe to Botswana, we saw what happens when there's a bottleneck like this. There were literally hundreds, no exaggeration, over well over 100, I would guess 200 trucks lined up, up one side of the road, back the other side, over here, this side street, all these trucks transporting goods that are all covered up in tarps and strapped down on the back of these trucks 
18-wheeler trucks waiting, sitting, not idling. Oh, no, those engines are off because those trucks have to wait, Cynthia said, upwards of two to three days before they can finally get inspected, loaded onto the ferry, and then pulled across the river to be on their merry way. Unbelievable. But then again, as Cynthia taught me the three-letter phrase, TIA, this happened at one of the border crossing, the immigration stations, and it was some screw-up, small screw-up, some delay of some sort. And she's just laughed in her beautiful, intoxicating African laugh. TIA. And I go, what? This is Africa, she said. TIA. That's their own saying. When when shit ain't right, when shit's taking too long, TIA. This is Africa. So these trucks, they sit there and they'll wait. The, the people who drive the trucks, the truck drivers, they've got to sit and wait. There's there's no other choice. There's no other option. I said to Cynthia, well, why, don't, why aren't there more ferries? Why, why wouldn't there be another couple of ferry companies that say, well, I'll help get your trucks across the river? Of course, that would only solve part of the problem. The government still has to staff up and make sure they've got people to inspect the cargo, and okay, unwrap it. What do you got here? How many bananas? How many uh, engine parts? Blah, blah, blah. But that's where the government, along with private capital, which doesn't really exist that much in those parts of the world, you need private capital to start Bob's Ferry Company so he can then go ahead and say, hey, I'll take you across, and I'll take you across for $5 less, left, or $5 less than this guy. And it's a win-win for all involved. Then we don't have to sit around with you guys sleeping in your trucks for three days waiting for the paperwork. Kind of hard to do, though, when there's, A, not much capital to invest in a new venture, and, B, the government hasn't shown any inclination of, hey, we got to get these trucks moving across the border. Hey, let's talk with our neighbor across the river there and say, what can we do to get more staffing here to check these trucks and get this going? It's good for everybody. You got goods, we got goods, let's get the goods going. Nope. Hundreds of trucks sitting idle along the side of a dirt road waiting. As such, an interesting side nugget to the story sprang up. Cynthia said, one thing that you will find is that there are local gazelles Did she call them gazelles? No, she called them impalas. There are local impalas you may spot on the corner here on this little junction near the ferry in which the world's oldest profession, prostitution. There it is again, back to the Robert Kraft story. The world's oldest profession is going on. That's right. There are hookers at the border between Botswana and Zimbabwe. Why? Because there are truckers there sitting for three days with nothing else to do. Wow. I didn't see any local Impalas. I joked to the group about how, yeah, that's my only regret is I didn't get to bag an Impala. You know what they say, what happens in Botswana stays in Botswana.
I don't think I had permission for my wife to get with a local Impala. But that just blew my mind that not only was there hundreds of trucks sitting around doing nothing for days on end, waste of time, waste of resources, drain on the economy, but a sub-economy had sprung up, which is, hey, we got Impalas here running around asking truck drivers, so you want the Bob, Bob Craft special or not? Just flash your lights if you do, and I'll come right over. Okay, enough about the politics of my trip to Africa. How was the safari? Outstanding. Again, if you saw any of the video clips I hastily put together, and I'm going to try to put together more, if you saw any of them on Twitter, and if you haven't, go to my Twitter feed, at Zabe. Just click on the media section. We saw just about everything we possibly could see in a three-day span. The only one of the big five that we didn't see was the rhino because those don't really exist in Botswana anymore. They have moved them to a more protected area, like a a preserve up there, because as aggressive as Botswana is against poaching, the rhino is the most poached animal and really is threatened if not... um, it's very threatened. It's I don't know if it's technically endangered or not, the black rhino, but it's poachers want that thing bad because of the horn. Because the horn, according to East, it, it, according to the Far East, let's just put it that way. I don't want to point fingers at any specific country or culture. Japan, I'm looking at you. China, I'm looking at you. The Far East believes the rhino horn has tremendous sexual potency power. And so they get a rhino horn, a genuine rhino horn, and they grind it up and they put it into potions and they put it into food or whatever they put it into in Japan, China, you name it. I I don't think Korea's in on this. I'll have to check that. Nice research again. You had all, you had 10 days to. Don't think Korea's in on this, but I think it's Japan and China. They they want the rhino horn to get a boner. So it's used in, oh, all kinds of tonics and herbal medicines and make your penis grow larger, fatter, like a rhino horn. So stupid. One of the great beautiful creatures of planet earth being slaughtered because of, Oh yeah, no, it's great. It's great for your sexual potency. No, it's not. Viagra is, we can make Viagra by the, by the bucket full stop poaching rhinos. But as long as there's supply to be had, as long as certain cultures and certain people will pay big money, then the poachers have an economic incentive to go cut down rhinos and cut off their horns. So we didn't see rhinos because those were the only ones that really didn't exist in Chobe National Park. Everything else we saw. And we saw a lion chase that when you see the video, you'll say, holy cow. At least that's what I think most people are saying. Wow, that's incredible you saw that. There was a chance we wouldn't see any lions at all. A chance because they, they don't tie them up to trees and then make you pretend like you don't see the chains on their legs. 
They could be anywhere. They could do anything. They could be migrating somewhere else. Their range is vast. They kind of know where certain lion prides are, and they send the Jeeps out into this one section of Chobe National Park all the time. But they don't know for sure. So we happen upon, in the afternoon, this uh, pride of lions, two females and a bunch of her cubs. The males don't really hang out with the pride. They're usually the one dominant male is patrolling the area off on his own, making sure other male lions don't come in and try to take over and kick them out. Probably a good idea to go watch Lion King again just for a refresher on how lion culture works. And the two females who look pretty hungry, according to our guides, decided to come out of the the brush on a little incline next to the banks of the Chobe River. And as they come out of the brush, they notice, ooh, ooh, there's a bunch of giraffe just walking down by the water, getting a drink. Oh, you know how giraffe have to drink water? They have to spread their legs. It's so funny. They get their legs all spread so they can ne- their necks can reach the water. You would think with their long neck they could just bend down and drink water. No, they can't. Neck goes up, great. Doesn't go down that great. I guess it doesn't bend the way it should bend or their shoulders are real stiff. So we saw that. So the, the lions notice, hey, there's six, seven, eight zebra or six, seven, eight giraffe out there. Let's hold on a second. We might have something here. We, we are pretty hungry right now. So before you know it, as our Jeeps are parked there, just watching the lions from coming out of the bush, maybe 20 feet away or so, the female lions get closer and they then start crouching down behind our vehicles. And our guides say to us, hey, they're using our vehicles as cover to try to surprise the giraffes. So at that point, I'm starting to get tingly. I'm starting to feel the hair on the back of my neck start to stand up straight. And when one of the two female lions got so low to the ground in that super lion-like crouch, and she just lowered herself so perfectly and effortlessly and cat-like and laid down right behind the truck, I damn near lost it. I was like, holy crap. It was at this time in which one of our guys in the group, Bob, I found out later on, good old special ops Bob, I called him because he walked slowly, was very quiet, came on the trip by himself. There's nothing wrong with that. Used to work for the Social Security Administration. Nothing wrong with that. Special ops Bob dropped his sunglasses outside the truck. Not on top of the line, thank God, but close enough that who knows, something could have happened. But the guides were not even worried at all about these lions being right around us because he said the lions look at the truck as one big unit, like a giant elephant, and they're not going to mess with it. And they see these trucks all the time. They know that These trucks, even though they're full of people who may smell delicious or just weird or whatever to them, they're not food and they're not a threat. So they just ignore us, which is crazy when you're on safari because you'll be sitting there and a lion will be looking right at you from 15 feet away sometimes. 
with nothing to protect you in the in the truck itself. There's no cage. There's no glass. There's not even a guy with a gun. So they used our Jeeps to kind of, you know, as cover. And then sure enough, boom, off they go. They gave chase. It was kind of a half-hearted chase. Didn't come close to actually getting their claws or their teeth into one of the giraffes. And I think would have had a hard time bringing one down because I've seen Planet Earth videos of a pride of lions trying to take down a giraffe. And even when they catch up to a giraffe who can run really good and really far, they're like giant horses on stilts. They'll run for miles at a time. Once they catch up to a giraffe, one of them has to climb on the back to sort of weight it down. That's no easy feat running at 20 miles an hour or whatever it is, maybe more. Get up on the back of a giraffe, hold on. Another giraffe has to come up on the front side and jump up and latch on to the throat of the giraffe and manage to try to, you know, choke off the windpipe or sever a major artery so it bleeds out. It's not easy. This Planet Earth video I saw of giraffes trying to do this, uh, one of the lions got kicked into next Wednesday by the giraffe who can gallop along and while being attacked by lions, just put out one of those legs, pow! They say a direct kick by a giraffe can be lethal to a lion if it connects. So these lions did not come close to taking down a giraffe, but we got to see them go after a giraffe, and that was incredible. The next morning, we got to see a leopard, and that's also very rare of the big five, which includes buffalo, uh, elephant, lion, leopard, rhino, Big five, meaning the big five that are hunted uh, and the big five, the most dangerous animals in Africa. We got to see the leopard the next morning, and that's usually the hardest one to spot because they're solitary predators. They're not, they're not in prides. Harder to spot and more nocturnal, more nocturnal, but they can be seen during the daytime as well. And we got to see a leopard walking along the banks of the river, on this sand dune in a scene that you just point your camera like I did and you feel like you are part of uh, David Attenborough's team. Oh, yeah, yeah, look at that great shot, perfect. Couldn't have posed it any better. And this leopard is walking along in a little watery bog where as it gets closer to the water, what pops its head above water? Oh, a hippo. And I got it perfectly lined up in the shot. As you'll see, if you go to my Twitter feed at Zabe, that's my shot I got there. There's the leopard down by the water and bloop, oh, here's a hippo to go. The fuck are you doing around my water pond? Hippos, very territorial. So sure enough, 30 seconds later, that hippo decides I've had enough of you leopard comes charging out of the water, chases the leopard away. Leopard was of no threat to the hippo. It's too small, too light, pretty much nothing. Very few things can attack a male hippo and win. 
only a smaller hippo, a baby hippo that maybe a pride alliance could get to. But it was the hippo going, nah, you know what? I don't like your kind around here. You're up to no good, so move it along. All of that was caught on film. All that was caught by people in our Jeep, many of whom just took their iPhone and held it up, and it got as good a video as I got on my expensive equipment. Which brings me to my next point, cameras. I'm getting rid of my full-frame gear. That's right. Not returning it. I know you're going to say to me, but Zabe, you said 2019 was the year you don't return things. No, because the full-frame gear that I've got is out of the return window. I've had it for too long. The Sony a7 III with the 24 to 105 f4 constant aperture lens. It's beautiful equipment. State of the art. It's fantastic. I don't need it. Yeah, but you never needed it, Zabe. You're not a professional photographer. I know. I'm an idiot enthusiast, as they say, with too much money. Here's the thing I learned about cameras, myself, taking pictures and videos that you're going to cherish from your vacation. First of all, I learned that iPhones and these Samsung phones are so good now. They're so good, it's a joke. In fact, here's how good these camera phones are. Of that lion chase, after we got done and we're all exhilarated, we get back to the uh, hotel and, who got, who got the shot of the lion? Okay, did you get this? One of the guys on our trip, Steve Osterman, I can name him by name, great guy. His wife, Mariana, wonderful woman, was sort of like the trip mom. She was always saying, can I get you a napkin? Can I do this? Can I? How about this? Come sit over here in the shade. Good old Steve Osterman said, oh, I got a great shot of the chase. And I go, oh, thank God, because I was mostly obstructed although I did get the good down-the-line hero shot uh, of the Lions chasing the giraffe. He said he got almost the entire thing because he was in a different Jeep on a different vantage point. He got on his phone. I said, okay, that's probably fine. Hands me his phone and pushes play, and I realized instantly, oh, fuck, you dummy. Vertical video. <laughs> My head slumped and my shoulders slumped. And he goes, what? What's the matter? I go, really, Steve? Really? This incredible lion chase that we all just witnessed, you film that vertically? He said, I don't don't know what I'm doing here. I just thought that was a... I said, man, you are killing me. But here's how good the phones and here's how good the cameras are on these phones. I then went in, I took his video anyway, in vertical mode, and I cropped it, which is throwing away a huge amount of the picture. I cropped it into 16 by 9 so I could use it in my video. And son of a bitch, if it still wasn't great resolution for the most part, even after being cropped like that, I was blown away. And it's not new to me that these camera phones are putting real cameras out of business. I know that. 
People have said that. But I saw it more on this trip. I, I really came to believe it. The last day of the safari, I went out there with just my camera or just my cell phone and a GoPro. That's it. And I said, let me just, I'm going to just fool around and take some good videos here and do a little bit of zooming in. I have the iPhone 10, which has the dual cameras in the back. So you do have a certain degree of optical zoom. Not only did I find that, yeah, it takes incredible 4K video. I also realized that it's incredibly stabilized. Whatever stabilization mojo and juju that Apple is putting into their phone cameras, and I'm assuming Samsung is the same way. In fact, I've heard Samsung cameras are even better than Apple cameras. Whatever. The stabilization is also fantastic. You can handheld, you can handhold a phone. And the end product video will be so, for the most part, free of micro jitters and other stabilizing annoyances. It blows my mind. I was using my finger to gently zoom in, not beyond the 2.0x optical until the picture starts to degrade because you're now eating up pixels. I did the gentle zoom in with my finger within the optical range And it was unbelievably smooth and reliable to be able to just slowly, I want to just creep in, creep in, creep in, slow zoom, slow zoom, and stop. But the high-end gear that I have, it's heavy. It's not true DSLR heavy. It's mirrorless, so it's smaller, but it's a lot heavier than my APS-C size sensor, my A6500 Sony, which takes almost, like you can't tell the difference between that much cheaper version, which is really more of a consumer still camera, the A6500 series, 65, 6300, 6000 going backwards. And it's way lighter. It's way lighter. It's cheaper. It's lighter. It. I don't need this big-ass camera and all the big-ass lenses and how expensive they are. And more importantly, I lugged that shit all around Africa, man. And it was a pain in the ass. I'm not a professional photographer. When you're doing, when you're videotaping and you're photographing yourself, participating in trips, whether it's a safari or a golf trip or a drunken vacation to Jamaica, you don't want to have a big rig with you. Even if you feel like I can handle it and I'm okay with it, you're always worried. You're like, this is a $3,000 setup or more. I got to keep an eye on it all the time. I can't just leave it under my 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 chair at the, t- at the, at the uh, pool and go take a piss somewhere. I, no, I got to keep an eye on it. I got to bring it with me. You worry about dropping it. You worry about getting wet, damaged somehow, stolen. Just, It's not worth it. You're just not getting that quality. So look on eBay. You'll be seeing an A7 III with some nice lenses on there because I'm scaling it back. The 6500 is going to be my high-end camera with one lens. That would be the 18-105 to power zoom, which I'm sure you don't care about. I have a Sony RX100 Mark V, which also takes stunning pictures 
and video, including 4K, including 120 frames per second in 1080p. Even has a, you know, not a slightly degraded super high speed setting on that RX 100 Mark V. And it's only got a one inch sensor, which is smaller than the APS-C. So between the 6500, the RX 100, my phone, the iPhone 10, and my GoPro, that's all I need. That's it. Those are my cameras. I got four cameras that'll do everything I could possibly. Oh, and I do have my Sony AX53 camcorder, which is a camcorder different from a actual photo photography camera that also does video. But let's not think, let's not count that for now. I'm getting out of the full frame business. I, you can't tell the difference. I I like to think I can. Oh, I can tell the the dynamic range and the depth of field. Uh, I love that look. That's a full frame look. Bullshit. I think I can tell the full frame look because I sort my photos in Apple Photos by camera and by lens, and I go look at those and go, okay, I'm looking at this. Yeah, these are the A7Threes. Oh, these are way better than the 6500s. And I go, okay, well let's uh, let's just do a blind taste test. Just start looking through your photos randomly and then try to pick out which one is this. Is this the APS-C sensor or is this the full frame? And the more I started doing that, hiding the info on which camera was which, I'd go, ah, it's full frame, and I'd click on it. Son of a bitch, no, it's not. How come I thought that? So I'm glad. I feel good about this. I'm going backwards in life. I'm going back. I'm retreating from my camera addiction. Whatever sort of hole in my heart, hole in my life, I was trying to fill with Sony cameras, it's over. High tide has come. High tide is now receding. You'll be back. Trust me, you'll be back. Shut up. Shut up. Not buying the Sony A7R4. I'm not. Unless you tell me it's got more than 48 megapixels. It does 240 frames per second in full HD. I might have to take a look at it. No, I must resist. All right, let's end on this today. And I didn't get to Bryce Harper, but that's okay because he still hasn't signed. Amazingly enough, I thought for sure while I was gone, he would have signed. We'll deal with him when that day finally comes. It better be coming soon. Spring training has already started. There's games going on. But let's end on this. Flying first class is worth every penny that you pay, especially on grueling, long, half-the-globe international flights like the one I took back and forth to South Africa. Now, many of you fly first class because you're frequent flyers. You're Mr. Million Mile Club, and you get upgrades all the time. I rarely fly first class. In this case, I was able to splurge a bit on the upgrade to first class because I was, you know, going on this trip for free as the host and leader of the trip as representative of the station and the kindness of Ronnie Mervis and the whole group. So I decided, well, I'm going to pay for an upgrade come hell or high water. And on South African airways, they have a little 
I think I told you this already, a little device that says, okay, you know, how much I, I already did. I told you about it. So I got my upgrade both ways. And it, it was, it was $2,200 each way worth every penny. I can't describe what it is about flying first class and they call it business class. Maybe some airlines still call first class, first class, meaning, yes, this is the best. And then there's a step that's business class, which is really nice. It's a lot larger, but it's not quite as pampered. Either way, they called it business class. It was incredible. You're sitting up in the front portion of the plane. When they board, the riffraff has to board behind you, so you don't even have to sit there and absorb the leers and the stares from the riffraff as they go down the aisle and you're sitting there all comfortable in your big-ass chair and spread out. You've got the Financial Times newspaper open and you are reading it with your gray poupon and you've already got champagne and a tall flute as you're sipping on it and then you have to watch the angry masses walk by you. Oh, no. No, on... First class on on South African Airways, and I think most big carriers that are transatlantic flights, they board mid-plane so that riffraff to the right, first class to the left, you don't even have to see them. These seats were not even the most luxurious of first class that I'm sure some airlines have. I have seen even more comfortable, more insane pod-like half-bed, half-chair type setups. These Airbuses that they were using as part of their fleet, eh, fairly dated in terms of first class, but the seats did recline fully flat. And they gave you bedding, really nice bedding, a really nice pillow, uh, a sort of a, a mattress pad of sorts to put under you, and a kind of a thick duvet sort of blanket to sleep under. And you could, and I did, fall asleep for upwards of six, seven hours at a time. First leg over was 12 hours. Second leg was six, I think it was. going. We had to stop on the way down in Senegal. We had to stop on the way back in Ghana. It was a little bit of a different split. I slept a good portion both times. The meals are really good. But they're still airline food, so don't get carried away. A lot of very fancy foods that I have to dodge around with my picky peat palate. Spinach garnish. Spinach garnish. I don't want that. Free drinks, though. Free cocktails, all you want. And the first class, or dare I say business class cabin, is so comically overstaffed with flight attendants. It was like four or five different flight attendants just for our own little section of first class. I mean, they, they, they got your food right away. They took your tray away right away. Hot towels. Everything about first class was fantastic. They were so nice. Anything you wanted. It's hard to describe, and maybe it's just because I rarely have flown first class, so it's still magic to me. It's more than just saying, yeah, I'm on a plane, which, okay, long flight but at least I've got some space to, you know, breathe. It's more than that. It's, it feels soothing first class. 
you'd get up and you'd go to the bathroom and it's comfortable. There's lots and lots of space, space to leg room to get out of your row, space in the overheads. Nobody's, nobody's stealing your space with an overhead carry on. That's way too large. It is fantastic. I looked forward to getting on the airplane because of how nice first class is. And only because I was already comp for the trip as part of my fantastic radio job that I have, could I afford to upgrade on my own dime. And because Mrs. C had to stay home and run the household with the kids in, in high school and get them around and get them on point. And I was on my own, you know, it was, it was within reach of, yeah, we can blow some money on this. And when I say blow some money, I, I don't even mean that. I mean, it's, it's worth it. I don't know how, sort of like Kramer, when he once got the taste of private golf clubs and said he can't go back to the public courses. I can't, Jerry. I won't. The grass is brown. The bunkers aren't raked. I don't know how I'm going to be able to go back to non-first class. Granted, most domestic carriers' first classes, eh, not that special. It's a wider leather chair and a little bit better service. International first class. Whoo, daddy. Just once in your life, I want you to experience it because it's like nothing else. You just feel so at peace and happy that you've got this comfortable almost living room, like a personal living room to sit in and be pampered and, oh, can I have another Johnny Walker and diet? Why, sure, sir, enjoy. That's what she said to me as I asked for my third one while watching Bohemian Rhapsody, great movie, on my iPad, while watching a bunch of Breaking Bad episodes, one after another after another. Um. Could I, can I trouble you? I'd get up to go to the bathroom. Can, can I trouble you? They'd be in the galley. I'd say, can I trouble you for one more Johnny Walker and diet? Absolutely, sir, they said with a smile. We'll bring it right out to you. And sure enough, they did. And they didn't just bring me them out one, two, three in a row without even hinting at, no, you've had enough, sir. Oh, no. After each one with a beautiful big smile they said enjoy oh did i ever enjoy on the flight down i had slept for damn near 7 hours straight during one of the legs so much flying so much sleeping during the flight that when i woke up within 10 minutes cabin lights came on yes captain here we're about to make final descent into uh, johannesburg I'm like, shit, can we do a few circles? I was hoping to wake up, put a few eye drops in, stretch, get some water, and then enjoy watching another episode of Breaking Bad. We got to land? I don't want to land. This is such a magical place. So my question is, for those of you who have flown first class or international business class a lot, tell me. Does the magic wear off? Do you get accustomed to it to the point where it's no longer special? It's still just a long plane flight where you're like, eh, long plane flight. And will I ever be able to go back 
to coach. And the steerage and the unwashed crammed in shoulder to shoulder ever again. That'll do it for today. Thanks for listening. Thank you for indulging me on way too many days away from the Zabecast. We're back up and running. Back up and running. The usual rotation of guests coming through starting tomorrow. Get the Zabecast app. Subscribe to Premium Friday Edition to get every bit of me during the week. That is the Zabecast. Podcasts are the future. They're like Netflix for your ears. Send me your suggestions for topics at Zabe at Yahoo.com. Now get on out there, fly first class sometime, and we will see you next time.